Hello and welcome to Atari Bytes, the show where we take a bite out of the story within a classic Atari 2600 game and see if that story bites us back. My name is Bill, this is episode 89. Thanks for listening. Welcome back everybody. I hope you're all doing well. Uh, I have a little bit of a cold. I'm even on like official doctor prescribed medicine. Uh, so I may sound a little deeper uh, voiced today. Uh, I might also be high. It's really hard to know. Uh, not that I'm complaining. Um, what's new in the world, guys, since I talked to you last week? Is anybody else watching the Orville? I've watched a few episodes. Uh, I don't think I watched this most recent episode uh, from last Thursday. Uh, the show is still struggling, I guess, to decide if it wants to be a funny show or if it wants to be a straight-up sci-fi adventure with humor in it. I think some of the story ideas that they've had have been interesting and sort of in keeping with the original tenet of like a Star Trek type show, which is clearly what's striving to be, uh, of taking on you know, big uh, thought pieces or contemporary issues that they can address in a sci-fi setting. But I'm still not sure uh, that the show knows exactly what it wants to be. But again, it's only the first few episodes and that's not unusual. I also watched the first episode of MacGyver, uh, this week, as I record this, I think by the time you're hearing this, there's been another episode. It was a pretty solid episode. I'm still not sold on the whole MacGyver team concept. MacGyver, I think, is a character at heart meant to be a loner, but at least in the season two opener, they did let MacGyver breathe a little bit. They kind of put him a little bit more at the front and let him do his thing, you know, with the gadgets and making stuff up without being so seemingly apologetic about it. The first season, they would let him uh, sort of invent stuff, but it was kind of rushed, and it was almost like they were embarrassed to spend any time on that. Uh, but, of course, that's what MacGyver's about, is making stuff uh, blow up or making crazy contraptions or whatever out of ordinary objects. And they kind of let him do a little bit more of that in the season two opener, which I was happy to see. I watched the first episode of Star Trek Discovery. I do not have CBS All Access, but I watched the uh, premiere on regular CBS, which they let you do before they made you start paying for it. It was interesting. Uh, it's very slick looking. I'm not crazy at all about the new version of the Klingons. But, you know, again, it, one thing I did like is, even though it was a premiere episode, they didn't do what most pilot episodes, including the Orville, do, which is spend the whole time introducing characters and not really telling a story. The Star Trek Discovery premiere managed to do a pretty good job of introducing characters, but still having an interesting story. So props for that. I don't know that it wowed me enough to pony up the six bucks a month to pay for CBS All Access. Uh, I'm still thinking about that. Uh, so if you guys want to uh, persuade me one way or the other, should I be watching more Star Trek Discovery or not? Let me know. Uh, and I guess that's it for this week's TV Roundup. In other news, my brother, hi Jerry, actually sent me an article that was kind of interesting. Uh, it was a mental floss article. Let's see if I can find it here. It's called Bit by Bit Inside the Rise of Retro Gaming by Jake Rawson, posted on September 26th. It's a long piece, but it, it is interesting. Um, they spend a lot of time sort of talking about how in this age of very modern contemporary games, a lot of people are going back and finding the old consoles for Atari and other uh, game systems, you know, purposely going out to thrift stores and whatnot, looking for old TVs to, uh, you know, for the connections, the, the connectors uh, 
for the consoles to the TV and to have those old style screens and whatnot. And the uh, author of the article kind of compares it to audiophiles who are into vinyl records as opposed to like CDs or, or uh, downloading music. It notes how uh, Nintendo was unprepared when it came out with the Nintendo Entertainment System Classic with the 30 preloaded games. They were unprepared for how much demand there would be for that thing. And everything sold out like immediately. Super Nintendo Classic comes out the end of... Well, it says the end of this month, but this was posted September 26th. I assume they mean the end of September. If anyone's seen this yet, let me know. And Nintendo's sort of marveling at the fact, or the author at least, is marveling at the fact that this game console released more than a quarter century ago could become one of the hottest gifts of the 2017 holiday season. Points out that apparently Sega Genesis is getting in on the uh, releasing classics act. Talks about how in 1983, Coleco manufactured an add-on module to play uh, Atari 2600 games first released in 1977. Atari got mad about that and sued Coleco for $350 million, and they eventually settled with Atari getting royalties. But then the video game crash happened. Nintendo and Sega became dominant players in the industry, and then sort of the, there was the rise of the clone consoles made by third parties with no affiliation usually with the original game company. They offer HD graphics, the ability to save games, and a slot for media cards. Companies like At Games, Retrobit, and others do brisk business selling equipment they didn't invent, and it's perfectly legal. They quote uh, a lawyer saying that hardware patents only last 20 years from the date of application, so by now you can rebuild the actual technology. Where you run into problems is if you try to reproduce a game without permission, then you have copyright and trademark problems. Has anyone played on a clone console? Uh, any thoughts? Any concerns? Uh, I have not. Uh, I hadn't really thought much about it, whether clone consoles were really even a thing. And then the article talks a little bit about uh, people who make their, uh, you know, the homebrews, uh, brand new games that have the look, feel, and gameplay of a 30-year-old title. So yeah, it's just a very interesting article. Go check that out. I will try to remember to put a link in the show notes. But if I don't, again, the article was on mentalfloss.com, bit by bit, inside the rise of retro gaming. Do check that out. Got a little bit of feedback to report this week. Our friend Sean had some comments on episode 87, Pigs in Space. Sorry, I gotta say that correctly. Pigs in Space! Sean wrote that he highly enjoyed the episode, except for the bad news about my VCS. Uh, Yes, as I reported, and I'm still not quite over it yet, so thanks for bringing that up, Sean. My venerable 2600 that I've had since I was a kid died in the middle of trying to play Pigs in Space. For, the, uh, for that episode, and I have not yet replaced it. Um, he suggests checking the, you know, getting a new power supply being the first thing that I should check. And, and I have thought about that. I haven't picked one up yet, but I intend to do that and uh, see if I can resurrect my old buddy. So thanks for your condolences, Sean. About the episode, he says that uh, my wife and I have the first two seasons of SNL on DVD. Um, I never bought those. Uh, I remember when they came out, and I think they ended up getting discounted pretty quick, too, but I never actually picked any up. But he has them. He says, uh, bet you anything, the real reason the Muppet sketches disappeared after a few episodes is they just plain sucked. If anything, sketches were nothing more than the result of various chemicals that were notoriously passed around among the casting crew of SNL back then. Yeah, I, I think in my response to Sean on Facebook, I said something, I talked about how I uh, had heard an interview when the DVDs came out. They interviewed Jane Curtin. Somebody did. And she said, yeah, you know, I picked up the, those DVDs and thought it'd be fun to sit down and watch them. And I put them in and, uh, you know, basically she said even she was bored. Because, like, with every SNL episode, whether it's from those first five years or, or whether it's a current one, 
uh, a lot of episodes, there's only like one or two sketches that are really funny, and the rest of the show is just kind of, eh. And, you know, the first five years are sort of lionized, or, or sort of uh, held up as the gold standard of, of late-night TV comedy, but even they had episodes where a lot of it just kind of fell flat. And I don't, I think I said in the episode, I haven't seen a lot of the sketches, the, the Muppet sketches from SNL, but yeah, the little bit that I do think I've seen is pretty out there. Uh, Sean goes on to mention uh, one thing I was surprised you, you, meaning me, didn't mention, Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, which is a classic. Uh, Sean and I have, have talked about this before on social media. Uh, we're both huge fans of Emmett Otter. He says, if you saw it in the 70s and 80s, you remember Kermit being the narrator over the years. Uh, the Muppets were sold off to Disney, uh, but Jim Henson's company retained the rights to Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, which means that any version you're likely to find legally now will have Kermit's parts edited out. I'm going to assume Sean doesn't mean, like, Kermit's parts. I think he means the parts of the episode with Kermit in it. Did I mention I'm on cold medicine today? He says, luckily, he, and I don't want to get Sean arrested here, but he says he found a few years ago a site where someone was selling homemade DVDs of various holiday specials, all of which were true to the way fans remember them. The guy had an Emmett Otter DVD that painstakingly restored the special completely. Kermit's scenes were back, and the scenes that were unique to different versions over the years were all included in their proper order. I'm so glad I spent the 20 bucks or so for that. It was so worth it. And I think the website no longer sells stuff. And he speculates, we don't know. Uh, I also checked out the website a few years ago, and they weren't selling anything anymore. And I would have to agree with Sean that they probably got contacted by a lawyer that said, yeah, knock that off. No, that, of course, has anything to do with pigs in space, but Sean and I are just Muppet fans, and we like talking about Muppet stuff. Oh, Sean also said basically what I said about how not every episode of SNL, whether it's from the first two seasons or whether it's modern day, is funny. He says it's not really much different from seasons of, say, the last 20 years. In terms of funniness, you'll have one or two good sketches, a lot of duds, and musical guests. The thing that people loved uh, the original cast for is pretty much limited to what's in all the SNL best ofs and retrospectives. And then he says, and the thing about him and I was Jug Band Christmas was the first time we got to see Kermit ride a bike. People attribute that to the Muppet movie, but it was really the Emmett Otter special. My wife loves to tell how uh, when her dad took her to see the Muppet movie, when she was a little girl, her mind was absolutely blown. How did they get him to ride a bike? And he was an engineer, too. Good on you, Jim Henson. You impressed an engineer. And then Sean schooled me. I thought the Muppet movie predated Emmett Otter. He says no. In fact, Emmett Otter came out in 77. Uh, again, nothing to do with Pigs in Space. Or the Muppet Show, for that matter. But it's Muppet stuff. And who doesn't like talking about Muppet stuff? So, thanks for that, Sean. I'm glad you enjoyed the episode. I'm glad you liked the Muppets. Because you truly are a man of good taste. Alright. Well, that's all the news I have that's fit to print or talk about. So why don't we get on to this week's game. This week's game is... Planet Patrol. Spectrovision, 1983. I gotta say, Planet Patrol... Sounds like a title for a 1960s black-and-white Doctor Who show uh, episode or story. Uh, It's not, but it certainly could be. Episodes in that era had titles like The Web Planet or Planet of Fear or actually Planet of Fear was later, but or The Mutants or uh, The Mind Robber. Uh, So Planet Patrol would fit in very nicely as a title for that era of Doctor Who. That was my obligatory Doctor Who reference for this episode. I will now describe to you how to play Planet Patrol, which will not take long. The manual is literally like two paragraphs, and then a short list of instructions 
setup instructions, which is literally just put the game in the Atari and turn it on and plug in a joystick. The object of the game. Your assignment is to patrol your planet day and night. As you fly your spacecraft, you must avoid enemy fire and destroy their spaceships. Don't forget to refuel occasionally, or this could make your mission a short one. Beware of sunset, because as soon as the night creeps in, the dark makes your task become impossible. Which should not be taken literally, of course, because you can still do it. It's just harder, so it's not impossible. It's just more difficult. Functions. Press select to set the level, then press reset to start the game. The levels are uh, level 1, 1 player slow, 2 is 2 player slow, 3 is 1 player fast, 4 is 2 player fast. Move your joystick up and down to move your white spaceship. Fire at orange enemy ships, which on my screen looked more like a, a reddish orange than just a straight up orange. Using the firing button, obviously. Dock with the black ship. This will allow you to land later and refuel. Enemy refueling depot. There are three of those, and you must destroy them before you can continue to the next stage. Uh, the bad news is, as soon as you do, you end up in the minefield, which follows immediately after the destruction of the field depot. You can't fire at them. The only thing you can do is dodge them, and I will tell you, it is pretty tricky, because it appears that the minefields each time are laid out randomly, and sometimes there is very little space to maneuver between them, and Atari spaceships are not necessarily the most maneuverable of all, you know, pretend spacecraft. Hint, when nighttime falls and it's hard to see the enemy, fire at random to get some light to show you the way. And that is literally all the instructions we get. Although, honestly, that's really all the instructions you need. Pretty straightforward gameplay. 8bitcentral.com says that side-scrolling space shooters were not uncommon in this era, meaning the uh, early 80s when this game came out. So it seems likely that Planet Patrol was seeking to capitalize on this genre and include a few extras. Defender was a leader in this genre, but the 1981 Atari 2600 version had a lot of flicker issues. It wasn't until 1985 that Defender 2 came out for the 2600 with a vastly better experience. In between, Planet Patrol tried to enhance the experience with a refueling scenario and daylight scenes. 8-Bit Central's sort of uh, shocking fact is that originally founded in 1981 as SpectreVision, a, a name change to SpectreVideo was in order to avoid legal issues with on-command's hotel TV system, also called SpectreVision. They began as a video game company that predominantly made Atari 2600 games as they moved into making computers. While this, meaning Planet Patrol, isn't a bad game, others in the genre have done it better. At the same time, we like the action and the daylight shift, day-night shift that alters your ability to see enemies approaching. Planet Patrol tries to differentiate itself from the others. We simply wish they'd amped it up a bit more. Fun game, but make sure you have Defender nearby. You want to save a few humanoids when you're done patrolling the planet. We'd still rather play Defender, but this is a fun enough ROM. I think I kind of agree with that. So, well done, 8-Bit Central. Not that you need my approval. And by the way, you know, I said that Planet Patrol would be, would be a perfectly at-home title for a Doctor Who story from the 60s. Turns out Planet Patrol, well, it's not that. It's not just an Atari game either. It's also the name of a 1980s American electro band and the American title of the 1960s British marionette-based sci-fi show Space Patrol. Yes, you heard that correctly. Planet Patrol was an American electro group originating in the 80s. The members were Arthur Baker, John Roby, and a quintet of vocalists led by Herbert J. Jackson. Lead singer Joseph Leitz, Rodney Butler, Michael Anthony Jones, and the late Melvin Franklin. They only produced a single album, 
the self-titled Planet Patrol in 1983, which peaked at number 64 in the Billboard R&B Albums chart. Uh, according to Wikipedia, they were active between 1982 and 84, and then again from 2006 to the present. Their labels were Tommy Boy and Warner Brothers Records. The most popular song they had was Play at Your Own Risk, created from tracks that did not make the final version of Africa Bombada's seminal Planet Rock. Space Patrol was a science fiction television series featuring marionettes produced in the UK in 1962 and broadcast beginning in 1963. So, in 1963, it was sharing the airwaves with Doctor Who. Space Patrol was written and produced by uh, Roberta Lee in association with the Associated British Corporation. They made three series for a total of 39 episodes, each one being uh, 24 to 26 minutes long, and the show featured the talents of Dick Vosberg, Ronnie Stevens, Libby Morris, Murray Cash, and Yasin Churchman. It was known in the U.S. by the title Planet Patrol to avoid confusion with the 1950s American live-action series of the same name. The marionettes used in the series incorporated some elements of Jerry Anderson's super marionation technique. Specifically, their mouths would move in sync with the dialogue. The show is set in the year 2100, by which time the indigenous and autonomous civilizations on Earth Mars and Venus have banded together to form the United the United Galactic Organization. Space Patrol is their military wing, and the series follows the actions of this interplanetary force, focusing on the missions of a tiny unit led by the heroic, bearded Captain Larry Dart. Uh, there are various humanoids in the crew, from Venus and Mars. They would use two interplanetary space vehicles, the Galosphere 347 and the Galosphere 024. There was uh, tech support on Earth. The show reflected sex roles characteristics of the culture and era which produced it, but blonde and brainy Marla would often explicitly point out that there are no dumb blondes on Venus. The series was created and written by the prolific polymath artist Roberta Lee, the first woman producer in Britain to have her own film company. Uh, The series was sold overseas and broadcast in the USA, Canada, and Australia, and in spite of the very low budget, which meant that sometimes the shadow of a puppet could be seen behind a TV screen, before the communication device was supposedly turned on, the show rated strongly with young audiences in many regions, including New York City, and garnered a huge following. Babylon 5 creator J. Michael Straczynski said that it was his favorite TV show as a child. I am curious... Well, here. I was thinking that Jerry Anderson, whose marination technique they used for the show, was the same Jerry Anderson that was sort of a prominent writer with in the Doctor Who years, but I don't see that listed on this Jerry Anderson's Wikipedia page, so I'm not sure if it is or not, and I guess that's really not relevant to what we're doing today. It doesn't sound like, uh, yeah, well, I guess it's possible that SpectreVision's Planet Patrol game was inspired by Space Patrol, otherwise known as Planet Patrol, uh, the game. We're not told what planet you're patrolling. I guess it could be related. I don't know. At any rate, it's just some interesting trivia that you can bore people with later. After the break... Last week, we were cops walking the Keystone Beat. This week, our beat is an entire planet. It's kind of like how after Gilligan's Island went off the air, they made that cartoon Gilligan's Planet. So really, the only question today is, Ginger, Marianne, or me? Wanted. Space pilot, capable of flying, patrol vessel, 
over the entire planet 24-7, constantly engaging in combat missions against enemy spaceships, pee breaks negotiable. Inquire within. So, Planet Patrol is an interesting game. First look at it, and it looks interesting. The spaceship designs are kind of cool. And I gotta dock with that thing. And I just docked with the fueling ship. Oops, I was screwing around talking to you and didn't get all my uh, enemy fueling ships destroyed. Sorry. That's gonna totally go in my file somewhere. Alright, let's start this over. I'm playing on game 3, the fast level. I can't frankly see all that much difference between the slow level and the fast level. Um, but like I started to say, Planet Patrol is an interesting looking game. Alright, let's try this again. One, two, three, and now I'm in this stupid minefield. I find the minefield to be kind of difficult. Alright, now I'm gonna, I don't really need fuel, but what the heck. Oh, Alright, I guess since I was all full, I didn't get any fuel. Alright. Makes sense. Um, so, you know, you're flying over the uh, planet's terrain. I guess we never are really told what planet it is. Uh, there's Stonehenge in the background. Kind of looks like Stonehenge. You know, and the sun was high in the sky and everything. But then what makes the game really cool, of course, is the change from day to night. Right? It gets kind of twilight. Um, the sun changes to a moon. Eventually it's totally dark out. You can't see anything unless you're firing. Uh, and then it's daylight again. And that's kind of cool looking. Big props for that. Adding uh, to that visual element to what otherwise would be a pretty rote uh, shoot the spaceships game. And I do kind of like the spaceship designs, like I said. The uh, enemy ships kind of just look like little uh, uh, caterpillars, maybe? I'm assuming not intentionally, and that's probably just me who thinks that. But your ship that you're flying is a very, to me, a very 70s looking spaceship design. And I'm not complaining about that. Alright. Alright. Now I need fuel. Slim Jims, and a tall boy. Thank you, fuel truck. Sort of odd that your spaceship gets fueled by a truck, but alright. Things just got fast. Come at me, bro. Hey, I totally hit that guy.
planet is safe once again. Actually, that's a lie. I got blown up. Uh, but you know what? At least I get to pee now. So, back to you in the studio. Here's the thing about Planet Patrol. When I started playing around with it this morning, having not really played it before, at first I kind of thought, eh, this is okay, I guess. But then when it started doing the day shifting to night thing, that just, it's a little thing, but it adds so much to the enjoyment of the game. So, I'm, you know, okay with elevating what I thought was an okay game to kind of a certain degree of coolness, just because I like the look of it when it does that. So, you know, points for that. Um, it's fun. I don't know that I'll play it a lot. Certainly we'll play it some. Uh, the one reviewer talked about how Defender is better. I don't know, and I'm probably going to get yelled at over social media for this, but I'm not necessarily a rabid Defender fan. Uh, I like it fine enough, and I played a fair amount of it as a kid, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know that I, I'm gaga for Defender either. It, Defender is probably better, but I, I did enjoy Planet Patrol, no doubt about that. Instead of a straight-up story this week, we have a historical record, folks. This is very exciting. The following was found in a dusty archive of long-ignored historical records, uh, mostly because they're fake. I'm making this up. Uh, it found by a Ph.D. candidate doing her thesis on Earth's meter maids through the ages. What we have are the Planet Patrol Earth Observation deck logs of Patrol Pilot Second Grade Lucy Carter. The following is a, a transcription of some of those logs. Space date, 42821. Tuesday for us. 0731 and 32 seconds. Nothing unusual noted. Space date, 42821. Tuesday for us. 0912 and 56 seconds. Nothing unusual noted. Space date, 42821. Tuesday for us. 1027 and 40 seconds. Nothing unusual noted. Space date, 43789. Wednesday for us, 4.14 and 58 seconds. Attempted to engage an intruder. Quickly determined it was just a broken satellite. Reported same to maintenance for repair and to sanitation to deal with the scorch marks. Space date, 44923. Thursday for us, 13.41 and 32 seconds. Nothing unusual noted. Space date, 44923. Thursday for us, 14.19 and 23 seconds. I think star X-19 moved. Space date 44923, Thursday for us, 1523 and 51 seconds. No, seriously, it moved. X-22, are those really stars? Space date 44923, Thursday for us, 1634 and 38 seconds. Reported to Central, a possible warping of space due to cloaked unknown vessel. Automated response received that my call is very important and will be addressed in the order received. Space date 46219, Saturday for us. 2.12 and 56 seconds. Hostile unknown vessels engaged and dispatched when they exhibited hostile intent. Also, cilantro. I hate cilantro. It deserved to be destroyed. Space date 46219, Saturday for us. 4.29 and 19 seconds. Personal log entry. Still a little shaky from the earlier encounter. Night comes earlier this time of year. From this vantage point, the setting sun is gorgeous. It's lonely up here sometimes being the only planet patrol ship. But moments like this, immersed in the twilight, I feel more connected to my planet than at any other time. I... What the hell is that? Editor's note. At this point, the transmission cut out. The patrol vessel left one more log entry, most of which was garbled due to damaged recording equipment, 
and much was drowned out by invading vessels' laser blasts. One portion remained. Enemy fire! No reinforcements. Not sure how I, I can how long I can hold out. Seriously, they only hired one patrol ship for the entire goddamn planet? The transmission ended there. The next and final communication on the ship's log was from Central. Please stay on the line. Your call is very important to us. That's our show. My thanks to Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com for Creative Commons' use of his songs, Reformat, Pinball Spring, and Take a Chance. Show notes are available at ataribytes.libsyn.com. You can email the show at ataribytes2016 at gmail.com, like the show on our Facebook page, follow the show on Twitter at ataribytes. You can find Atari Bytes all over the place, as you know, but you should make sure to fly your patrol ship over to iTunes and leave a planet-wide review. Then go tell your friends to listen, too. Also, please consider supporting the show financially on our Patreon page or by picking up Atari Bytes merchandise at Zazzle.com. Links to all of that in the show notes. And, if you have time, please check out my other show, It's Podcast Charlie Brown, for all your Snoopy-related needs. New episodes drop on the 15th of every month. Next time on Atari Bytes. It's been a while since we visited a 7800 game, so we're going to, right now, uh, meaning next week. We're going to look at the 7800 version of Pole Position 2, so that should be fun. So until next time, go play some old games. They've missed you. Thank you.